morning. I'm so glad you're with us in person or online. Welcome to church. I want to just reiterate something Josh mentioned. Um, Whether you are watching online or in person sitting here in front of me, um, true spiritual community uh, will not happen uh, one hour on a Sunday morning. Um, I want to encourage you that as we enter uh, the new year to seek out and prioritize Christ-centered relationships with people that you love and trust who will uh, not only encourage you, but be someone whom you can encourage and build up. We need both of those things in our lives as Christians to grow. So um, if you have your Bibles, um, open them up to Matthew chapter 11, and we'll start there. We're going to hop all around. Uh, The blueprint for today, uh, I have three points, basically, and we're going to just walk through them and back up each with Scripture. Um, All of the things that I'm going to talk about today revolve around the idea of disbelief and belief, or you can say trust and mistrust, or you can say faithful, right, or doubtful, right? So that's the content of the day, and the three points are here for you note takers or type A'ers. Number one, disbelief is a condition. Disbelief is a state of being. Uh, and therefore makes you, one B, one A, therefore makes you blind to evidence that could be right in front of your face. Two, Christian belief, contrary to, some, to what some may think, is not a blind faith or a blind belief, but is rather rooted in history and reason. And number three, at the end of the day, belief or faith is a path that we choose to walk. Okay? And I have, so there they are. Blueprint down, um, and we're going to try to hit each one and back it up with Scripture, and I'm going to try to convince you from the Scriptures that those things that I just said are true. So let's pray. Jesus, um, I just ask that your nearness uh, would be felt profoundly in our hearts this morning as we sit with you. Father, I ask for an immediacy between us and you in this moment um, as we gather together and open your word. Father, give us ears that hear and eyes that see. Lord, I ask also that you would pour faith out on your people because we acknowledge our faithlessness and that we need your power and work in our hearts and lives to be people that are full of faith. Have mercy, Lord. We love you. And let me pray these things. Amen. Number one, disbelief is a condition. Um, Disbelief is like a sickness or deficiency. It is a state of being. Uh, Something that captures you and that you are stuck in. Um, That's my first point. It's a condition. And the first scripture I'm going to bring to your attention to prove this to you or to try to convince you of this, is Matthew 11, starting in 16. should be on the screen. I'll read it, then we'll chat. But to what shall I compare this generation? Let me give you a little context. Jesus is, um, I don't want to say the word defending, but he's uh, showing, trying to communicate to John the Baptist that Jesus, that he himself is the Messiah, and that and affirm John the Baptist's ministry in the same moment. John the Baptist had sent his disciples to Jesus saying, hey, listen, John was in prison. 
and, and, and apparently becomes clear that John was having doubts about the person of Jesus and probably revolving around the issue that John was in jail to be killed. And John is thinking, are you the one? And if you're not the one, or and, and therefore, you know, if you're not the one, if you are, or maybe it's if you are the one, why am I in prison? And why, why, why am I about to die? Because I thought this was going to go a different way. And so John the Baptist, whom Jesus said is the greatest man ever to walk the face of the earth, right, For, in the kingdom, um, has doubts about who Jesus is. And so his disciples go to Jesus, and this is what Jesus answers, okay? This is part of the answer that Jesus gives in Matthew 11. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. So we have joyful song and mourning song, right? Two spectrums, so opposite sides. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus is pointing something out about the state of disbelief. He's pointing it out that it is a state. It's a condition. And even though you may see evidence on both sides of the spectrum, disbelief in your heart will find a reason why you do not have to yield to the voice of God. You see, the context of this, right, is John having doubts. And Jesus is affirming his ministry and affirming his ministry. And towards the end, he says, this generation is willfully ignorant even when God confronts them in completely different ways, in completely different styles, in completely different people, they will still find a reason to not yield to the voice of God. John the Baptist, John the Baptist was an ascetic, right? He, he, lived, he was a wild man, lived in the wilderness and ate locusts and honey, right? And his song was one of mourning and repentance. That's what he called the people of God to repent, right? His song was one of fasting and sorrow, and it was a song directed by the heart of God to his people, right? And the religious people said, I, I, you know, I just like to be uplifted, you know, when I go to church. (laughs) The religious people said, I just feel like we should be encouraging as the people of God. He's a wild man, prophet in the desert. And they said, God doesn't work that way. Jesus, the son of God himself, came, right? In whom it is said the fullness of deity dwelled, came. And his song was one of joy and salvation of all invited in and liberation and redemption and healing the sick. And the religious people said a holy man would never hang out with the riffraff he hangs out with, right? How could this be the holy Messiah of God? Both men sent from God, both men speaking the message of God, and both were dismissed by those who claimed they knew God. Because in their hearts, in the center of their religious life, disbelief lodged. 
And it enabled them to rationalize, no matter what the package, what the medium, whether the, <laughs> whether the pastor had a mustache or not, right? <laughs> that, that what he was saying was not of God. You see, that's what disbelief does to you. Now think of the implications of this. We're not going to go there, but of course, this has all sorts of implications, all sorts of places in life, right? Where you become so wedged in your position that even if you stare evidence in the face, you say, no, that's not true. That can't be. So this is hello. So the same thing is true spiritually. And what I'm trying to tell you today is that is not simply something you are choosing to do, but rather a state in which you find yourself. You are in a state of spiritual disbelief. And you will find your mind rationalizing and coming to terms with things that you hear that could be God, right? And you will immediately dismiss those things. And what I'm telling you is that you are in a state of disbelief. It's a condition of the soul, right? The man who cried out one of my favorite all-time prayers to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief in Mark 9, in that moment knew in some ways lack of faith was a state in which he was helpless under. If not, what's the use in crying out, help my unbelief, right? No one desperately cries for help if they think they can muster it themselves. So often, what people do who are in a state of disbelief, and we do this, is lay out some test, okay? And they say, well, if this thing happens, then I'll believe. Now, the Christianese term for this is laying out a fleece for you old schoolers, right? And they're basically saying to God, if you want me to obey, you're going to have to prove it. Like you're going to have to do something crazy, and then I'll obey. So Christians do that, but whether you're a Christian or not, we all can find ourselves making deals with the divine and saying to him, I will believe if my marriage works out. Then I'll give you faithfulness and obedience. I'll believe, Lord, I'll be a person of faith and of substance and of depth, and I'll put value on spiritual things if you will fix my boss. Just, ugh, right? If you will fix my church, <laughs> if you will fix my past, fix my coworker, if you will just solve this immediate problem in front of me, then I'll be a person of faith, right? And it's exactly what we see happening in Matthew 27, 42. When Jesus was being crucified, the religious people who had him killed stood by and said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, then we will believe. Same thing. And what they are betraying in their own hearts is a state of disbelief. And they're saying, they're putting up an obstacle course, a hoop for God to jump through to prove to them that he's worthy of their trust, and then I'll believe. And what I'm telling you is, no, you won't. Even if you see the sign, you will find a reason to dismiss it and rationalize it and explain it away, right? I don't like that pastor anyway. He's too snarky, right? 
Hey, look, guys, we do this all the time, right? When God speaks to you through your spouse, <laughs> you have a decision to make, don't you? When you, let's get, when you get to know me more and you realize this dude doesn't know what he's doing, you have a decision to make. Can God use a fool or not? Can God use your spouse or not? Do you have liberty for that in your cosmos? Or, or will you demand the vehicle through whom God speaks to you be the package that you think is to be a perfect person? <laughs> right? We, we think, in, the, in that moment when the Pharisees were standing at the cross and they were saying, listen, if you're the son of God, you come down right now. You prove it. Then we'll believe in you. You know, what they are really saying is, I will believe in you if you act like me. That's really what they're saying. If you use supernatural power to do the things that I would do if I was in your spot, right? If I were you, I would save myself if I had power. So clearly, you don't have power. And you see, fundamentally, it's a misunderstanding about the character and nature of God. Because if he has all this power, then of course he would save himself, right? This is a fundamental misunderstanding of the character and nature of God due to blindness in their hearts of what the power of God really looked like, you see? Because like many today, blind to the power of Jesus because they're looking for some supernatural miracle to help them in some short-sighted situation rather than looking to the cross. See, many are blind to the power of God because they are looking for power in the wrong places. Uh, Jesus seemed to think, it's kind of a side note, that the, the, his power, the power of God, is seen most clearly in the love of God displayed on the cross. That seemed to be where Jesus pointed to for power. And I'll prove it to you. Uh, when people ask him for a sign in Matthew 12, they say, show us a sign. Same thing. Then we'll believe. He says, the only sign you will be given is that of Jonah. What does that mean? He says, Jonah was in the whale three days and nights. So the son of man will be in the heart of the earth three days and night. See, he points to the cross when they say, prove it. It's interesting, isn't it? But they're holding their faith back as ransom, right? Until they get a particular form of evidence that they want. One, and I'd argue that's called the state of disbelief. And what Jesus will say in a moment, what we're going to see, is even if they get the sign they want, they want, they still won't believe. Even today, right, we do this all the time, right? Put out a fleece, right? Christians make these deals. Spouse, I said that already. Um, but the thing about being in a state of disbelief is this, is that it fundamentally makes you blind, to evidence that may be right in front of your face. Disbelief, the condition, the spiritual condition of disbelief is a willful ignorance. It's a deliberate refusal. I'm gonna give you three examples to back this up. John 5, 46, and perhaps more convincing, Luke 16, 19, and then lastly, Matthew 28. It seems that when Jesus confronted disbelief in the religious of his day, not only was he addressing uh, lack of faith in himself, right, the fact that they weren't believing him, but he says he would reveal to them that the root of their lack of faith in him was actually because they didn't believe any of the Bible already, right? 
he is continually confronting disbelief, right, in his ministry. So he'd say stuff like this uh, to guys who had the first five books of the Bible memorized. He'd say stuff like this. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my word? So (laughs) to people that had made their living teaching Moses, right? Like pastors of the day, like the religious hubbub, high ups, leaders of the uh, community, right? Basically, Jesus said to them, your life is a sham. (laughs) No wonder they killed the dude, right? (laughs) He basically just said, all the things that you've built your life on, you don't even believe. Because if you would believe that, then you would believe me. Because I am the word made flesh. Huh? Like that. This is what a state of disbelief does. It creates a kind of blindness in you. And if you're still unsure, I'm going to tell you another story. I've got more scripture for you. Here we go. Normally, a story that we might consider is about wealth. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then at the end, you can tell me if it's about wealth or if it's about disbelief, or maybe a little bit of both. Ready? Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed, good, we have it, in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. And now he's comforted here, and now you're in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none, may be, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, 27, then I beg you, Father, send to him, send to, wait, wait. I, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, they, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Because disbelief is a state of being, and it makes you blind to evidence that may be right in front of your face. Jesus said, they have Moses. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if the supernatural should happen right in front of their faces. And of course, rising from the dead was intentionally used because that's the great claim of Christianity, that Jesus did rise from the dead, which brings us to the third example. In Matthew 28, after he rises from the dead and shows himself to his disciples, they are looking at him in the face, right? Touching him, eating with him, talking with him. And in 28, 17 says, they worshiped him, but some doubted. 
<laughs> this is like the 12, the 11 right now, right? They look at him in the face, risen from the dead, and yet some of them found in their hearts doubt. Now, I find that comforting in some levels, right? For those in disbelief, it doesn't matter if Jesus comes down in glory and levitates five feet off the ground in front of you, right? And you'd say, well, that's smoke and mirrors. That's all David Blaine do that, right? <laughs> right? It doesn't matter what evidence happens. When you're in a state of disbelief, you will find a reason to dismiss it. Right? Let me tell you an illustration I heard recently from Tim Keller that exemplifies this. It's kind of funny. He says, let's say you have a friend, uh, and this friend is a big nerd, and he's into like zombie movies or whatever, and he decides that he is dead. He's a zombie. He's a, he's a walking dead. He's like, I'm committing to this. I'm, I'm a dead person. I'm, I'm convinced I'm dead. I'm a dead person. Right? Like sixth sense, you know? Dead, walking around. And, and you say to your friend, no, Tim, you're, you're not dead. You're alive. I'm telling you, we're talking, have a conversation. You're alive. He's like, no, I'm dead. I'm dead. Okay, Tim, listen, if I prove to you that you are alive, will you quit with all this nonsense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, prove it. If you can prove it, fine, I'll listen, right? Okay, so you go get volume after volume of medical books dating back to the 19th, 18th century, right? You open them all up. You highlight in all these books after books after books, dead people don't bleed. Been dead six hours, it's done, right? Your blood's settled in. You're not going to bleed if you're dead, all right? So you open them all up, bring Tim in. You say, Tim, look, this is decades, centuries of medical expertise saying that dead people don't bleed. You see this? Tim says, yeah, I see that. You take a little thumbtack and you get him right in the arm. Ow! Right? He starts bleeding. Tim, you see? You are bleeding. Therefore, you are not dead. And Tim looks off. And he hesitates for a moment. And you say, Tim, this proves you're not dead. And he says, well, I guess it proves that centuries of doctors don't know dead people from alive people. <laughs> what disbelief does to you, right? No matter what the evidence is in front of you, you say, no, it doesn't prove that, you know. Jesus knew that. He knew that disbelief lodged in your heart makes you blind, right? Now, if all this is true, right, if being in a state of disbelief has dramatic effects on your being, right, then in some ways, the opposite is also true, right? To believe also has dramatic effects on you, as well. Now, I've, uh, when I became a Christian, I don't know if you've ever felt this, I felt a bit challenged by the notion, maybe it's the simplicity of our faith. Like, you just believe and that's it? Like, that's all faith alone, grace alone, it's several, it just, it just kind of seems too simple, right? Like, is that it? Right? And I think maybe I felt this way because I sorely underestimated the, what belief does to a person. See, Jesus seemed to think that it only took the tiniest amount of faith to see great effects in your life, right? He said a mustard seed was the example. You ever seen a mustard seed? It's like the size of Abe Lincoln's beard on the penny. Like it's tiny, a little tiny mustard seed. And he, Jesus was trying to say something to us about the monumental effects of faith 
of what true, authentic faith has in our lives. Caesar, you got a faith of a mush, you're gonna move mountains, is what he used, right? You're gonna tell a tree to be uprooted and planted in the ocean, it'll obey you. Crazy kind of stuff, right? Like supernatural kind of crazy stuff. And he says, all it takes is a sliver of that, just a little bit of faith, a little bit of belief, and God can do crazy stuff, right? So you can find dozens of secular studies which will laud, which will praise the power of belief, right? You guys read these things? Like simply that to believe something in and of itself does something psychologically to a person, right? The power uh, that, you guys read this stuff, you know? Like, like the placebo type effect, right? Like if you believe it, then you, you see these different consequences in people. But the power and effectiveness of Christianity isn't simply in the psychological effects of faith. It's not what we're talking about when we talk about Christian faith, okay? But rather, the power and effectiveness of Christianity is in the person in whom we have placed that faith, right? In other words, we aren't talking about the placebo effect in Christian uh, faith. We're talking about trusting in a person whose engagement with us is generally dependent on your willingness to acknowledge him. Now, that's true in any relationship, Someone walks in a room and you ignore the fact that they exist, they will probably not engage with you, right? So too with God. Your engagement, the, the, the efficacy of, of your walk with God will be in some ways tied to your ability to believe, to have faith, to trust. Jesus makes this clear. He was after faith. Jesus wanted us to be people of faith. If not, why did he say stuff like, believe in me, <laughs> believe also in my Father, he was after faith. He wanted us to believe. And the efficacy of your walk with, in other words, the effects of it, the impact of right now, the impact of when you walk out of this room and go about your life, of whether or not Jesus will be present with you is in some way tied to the amount of faith you have. I know that's kind of hard for us sometimes. We get really glued to, hey, it's by grace and God is doing all this. Yes, he is. But there's also a part for you to play. And primarily in the Bible, we, it's, the, it's called faith. It's called belief, right? And we can see this in Matthew 13. Jesus walks into a town, and it says that he doesn't do many miracles there because they did not believe in him. And Jesus does this crazy thing in his ministry often. He'd go into a town, and if, he, if they'd say, hey, we want you to leave, you know what he'd do? He'd leave. He's a gentleman in that way, right? But if we don't want him in our lives, he won't force himself on us. And that is generally too. So when we're talking about, the, we're talking about faith as a Christian, we're not talking about the placebo effect, right? We are talking about whether or not you have made God welcome in your domain, right? Whether or not you've given room uh, for God. Um, so let me say this this way. You can say it this way. Your soul's state of either belief or disbelief will have dramatic effects on you and will generally determine to what extent you see and engage with God. And I say generally for a reason, because we find places in scripture where God breaks in to someone's life with no evidence of faith at all. Like Paul, it's a great example of this. Knocks him off his horse, right? And boom, saves him, right? And he speaks to him. And even, but even there, even in this, this is really interesting. Even in this supernatural occurrence, when God just opens up the curtains of the cosmos and boom, walks in supernaturally, and there's a great light, there's a great sound. Even there, you get two sides of the same story. Paul saw the light of Jesus and heard his voice. The guys with him, they just heard something. 
Interesting, right? We see this also in John 12 when God speaks from heaven uh, to Jesus. Some crowd, there's a crowd there. And some of the crowd says, yeah, we heard something. We think it was thunder. And others say, no, we, we, it was a voice. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting how the same thing can happen. And two people can see that same occurrence from completely different sides. And the same thing for two different people. For one person, it fortifies their faith. It builds them up. They walk out encouraged and lifted up in the Lord and further says, that was just thunder. As is church. <laughs> As is every worship song we ever sing. Some people will sing those songs and think that was some thunder. <laughs> Other people will sing those songs and their soul will be lifted up to, a, to another level of existence. Jesus will inhabit their very praises. They'll engage with the creator of the universe. And they'll both walk out. One saying, that was, was a, little, a little pitchy. And the other saying, I've met with the living God. What was the difference? Faith. Belief. Right? At this point, you might say, okay, Chris, that's fine. Disbelief makes you blind. Well, so does faith. Faith can make you blind. You heard of blind faith? Okay, well... That, you know what? The other day, my daughter was convinced that if she taped a piece of cardboard in a bowl, she could put water on one side and food on the other. I said, that's not going to work. She said, watch me. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, go for it. I mean, her confidence was like, that was awesome, you know? Like 15 minutes later, she's like, yeah, you're right, it didn't work. <laughs> but her blind confidence was just remarkable. For so many people, that's what they say Christianity is. You're just... Jumping into the unknown, taking a blind risk, and they would say that your faith makes you just as blind as what you would call my unfaith, my disbelief, right? Um, contrary to what my, some may think, the Christian faith is not a blind faith, but rather is rooted in history and reason. And actually, Jesus said he came to open the eyes of the blind, not to ask for blind allegiance. So I'm going to read to you a portion of, from John Piper's book. What is this? A Peculiar Glory. Uh, he points out, this is very, have I read this before? I don't know if I've read this uh, from here. But he points out that blind faith, unwarranted trust, what he calls, um, does not honor a person, nor is it what Christians are called to. Okay, here we go. Think of it this way. Suppose you meet a man on the street whom you do not recognize, and he gives you a bag with $50,000 in cash and asks you to, to deposit it in the bank for him. He says that his account number is in the bag, and you're surprised because you don't know him at all, and you say, why do you trust me with this? He says, no reason, just taking a risk. What is the effect of that faith on you? Does it honor you? No, it doesn't. It shows the man's a fool. <laughs> but suppose he said, I know you. You don't know me, but I work in the same building as you do, and I've watched you for the last year, and I've seen your integrity in dozens of ways. I've spoken to people who know you, and the reason I'm trusting you with this money is that I have good reason to believe you are honest and reliable. Now, what is the effect of that faith? Well, it truly honors you, doesn't it? Why? Because it's based on the real evidence that you are honorable. The fruit of such faith is not folly. The fruit of such faith is wisdom, and, the, and that faith and wisdom honor the person who is trusted, so it is with God. If God says, why did you trust my word? And we say, no reason, just taking a risk. God is not honored and we are fools. So I'd like 
We don't have time to go into all the reasons why I would argue that Christianity is historically reliable and reasonably, uh, we can reasonably put our faith into it, but uh, just know, on, on a very kind of academic side, there is what, what one theologian called an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the historical validity of the Bible you are holding in your lap or device or whatever, right? And uh, when it comes to that, the historical accuracy and validity of the Bible, we know more so than any other historical document of its same age that we have today exactly what the original writers wrote, primarily by the number of copies we have that date back centuries, right? Now, that doesn't deal with whether or not you will believe the Bible, right? That's a different thing altogether. It does, however, show that the accuracy of the Bible in your hand is resoundingly authentic, right? And while there is such a thing, as a faith that makes you blind, as Piper argues, a faith like that brings no honor to Christ. In fact, the claims of Christ is that he makes us see, right? Like I just said, John 12, 46. I've come into the world as a light, so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. One of the basic claims of Jesus is that if you will believe in him, you go from blind to being able to see. And see what? Primarily who he is. That's what you see, right? Lewis says this, I believe in Christianity like I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. Now, that being said, last point, here we go. At the end of the day, based on the evidence you see or don't see, whether God in his mercy has opened his eyes, uh, opened your eyes to, to this or that, right? Faith is a path that we choose to walk, okay? So here's my last argument for us, all right? If that's not the case, why would Jesus admonish his disciples, believe in me, Believe also in my Father, right? If our decision and commitment had no part, why did Jesus say things like, command things like believe? John 14, 11, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works. Jesus does point to the works and say, hey, look, if you can't believe me as a person, look, I'm doing some crazy stuff. Maybe you can believe that, right? And it's clear that Jesus is after a people of faith, people who would choose to trust him, and he may work signs, may do miracles, may even rise from the dead, right? You may even, you have made, you have seen miracles yourself, right? Anyone? Anyone want to? I mean, I've seen some crazy stuff before, right? I've seen stuff that I can't explain, that I have a hunch that was a miracle, yet you will still have to choose to walk that path of faith. The mere existence of miracles that you may witness does not steal the deal for you. You have to choose to walk out that faith. I'm going to read this last bit, and then we're going to wrap it up. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about this kind of faith, okay? I must talk in this chapter about what the Christians call faith. Roughly speaking, the word faith seems to be used by Christians in two senses or on two levels, and I will take them in turn. The first sense, it means simply believe, accepting or regarding as true the doctrines of Christianity, and that's fairly simple. What does puzzle me or what does puzzle some people, at least used to puzzle me, is the fact that Christians regard faith in this sense as a virtue. All right, so I hope you have your thinking caps on. I know we're reading a lot of stuff today. As a virtue. I used to ask, how on earth can it be a virtue? What is there moral or immoral about believing or not believing a set of statements? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Obviously, I used to say a sane man rejects or accepts any statement. And that makes sense from a purely logical perspective. Um, not because he wants to or does not want to, but because the evidence seems to him good or bad. 
If he were mistaken about the goodness or badness of the evidence, that would not mean he was a bad man, but only that he was a not very clever man. And if he thought the evidence bad, but tried to force himself to believe in spite of it, that would merely be stupid. Well, I think I still take that view, but what I did not see then, a good many people do not still see now, which was this. I was assuming, here we go, that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some real reason for reconsidering turns up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason, but that is not so. For example, my reason is perfectly convinced by good evidence that anesthetics do not smother me, that properly trained surgeons do not start operating until I am unconscious, but that does not alter the fact that when they have me down on their terrible table and clap their horrible mask over my face, a mere childish panic begins inside of me. I start to think I'm going to choke, and I'm afraid they will start cutting me up before I am properly under. In other words, I lose my faith in anesthetics. It is not reason that is taking away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It is my imagination and my emotions. The battle is between faith and reason on one side and imagination and emotions on the other. Now, just the same thing happens in Christianity. I'm not asking anyone to accept Christianity if his best reasoning tells him that the weight of the evidence is against it. That is not the point at which faith comes in. But supposing a man's uh, reason once decides that the weight of the evidence is for Christianity, well, I can tell that man what's going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment when there is bad news or he's in trouble or living amongst a lot of other people who do not believe. And at once, all of his emotions will rise up and carry a sort of blitz on his beliefs. Or else there will come a moment when he wants a woman or wants to tell a lie or feels very pleased with himself or sees a chance of making a little money in some way that's not perfectly fair. Some moment, in fact, at which it would be very convenient if Christianity was not true. And at once, again, his wishes and desires carry out a blitz. I'm not talking about moments at which any real new evidence against Christianity turns up. Those have to be faced in a different manner altogether. I'm talking about moments where mere mood rises up against it. So while I heartily agree that God opens our eyes, Christianity is a revealed religion, we cannot believe without his grace working behind and before, right? That he himself gives us what we need to walk the path of faith. At the end of the day, we will still have to decide whether or not to keep walking the path underneath our feet. In some ways, we see this as true. And at the end of all things, Jesus will say to some and not to others, well done, good and faithful servants. It's because they've chosen to walk in a way in which he has put before them in his grace. And the last thought I want to leave us with is this. No matter how long you are a Christian, how long you've been walking this path of, of faith, this side of heaven, you will always find in your heart pockets of disbelief. And I think Jesus wants us to be the kind of people that when we, will, when we find those pockets of disbelief, we'll cry out the prayer the man cried, which is, I believe, help my unbelief, right? We have to learn to be honest, lest our faith be the kind that brings no honor to Jesus and makes us a people of great blindness instead of a people of great vision, right? It seems we find in the New Testament um, all sorts of religious people who, because of their religion, were made blind. John 9 talks all about it. Go read John 9, right? And other people 
because of their faith and belief in Jesus, made them able to see. So two examples of this, and then we'll wrap it up, right? I want to give you two examples, two behaviors that really show, that help us see whether or not there are pockets of disbelief in our hearts and lives, right? The first is this, very simple. This is application, right? What do we do with all this, right? Okay. Well, if we're going to assess if there is faith or disbelief in our hearts, I'll give you one example, forgiveness. Forgiveness is a lovely idea, isn't it? (laughs) Except when it comes to that person, (laughs) right? Except when it comes to that one person on social media that every time you see their post, your blood boils. Is that just, oh, it's just me. He's going to leave me up here, right? Right? When, When we have in our mind, when we can rationally say forgiveness is a really good idea, when we can say rationally, reasonably, you know what, as Christians, we should forgive and yet find within us an inability to forgive, I would argue there's disbelief in your heart. See, what's happening there is you don't believe Jesus really has your best interest in mind when he says forgive. You need to forgive. See, what, what's happening there at its root is a disbelief or maybe misunderstanding of either one, the depth of forgiveness that Jesus offers us, or number two, you really don't believe what Jesus says when he says, if you don't forgive, I won't forgive you in Matthew 18. You didn't know that was in the Bible? It's in Matthew 18. See, there's, there's something happening at this kind of subconscious level in our hearts and minds when we can say, yeah, that's a good thing. Everyone should do that and yet find within us an inability to do it. And even be convinced, even from Jesus, that, yeah, forgiveness is a good thing. Like your blood pressure's less, you know, and you get along with people and you're a peaceable person. There's all these uh, tangible benefits of forgiveness. And yet at the end of the day, we find in our hearts pockets of unforgiveness that we can't unlodge no matter what. What I'm going to say to you is it's not your willpower. It's, it's a pocket of disbelief in an area in which you are not trusting God. You're not trusting him in the ways that he says reality is, really. But here's another example, right? It's why you try to stop, but you can't stop gossiping about others, right? You hold them in contempt and you call others to hold them in contempt and you know it's a sin, right? But what's made clear by your actions is that you believe in your heart of hearts that talking in a way that is superior to other people is more rewarding than what Jesus said, let your language be encouraging, right? And then what the Bible says, where does I have it down here? Ephesians, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs so that may benefit those who listen. You can say, yeah, you know what? That's right, you know? You know that encouraging words are better than belittling words, right? You maybe even have felt the goodness of using your words to heal and encourage rather than tear down and wound. But because you're in a state of disbelief around Jesus' teachings about words, you're stuck in your pattern, right? What it really shows is you don't believe him when it's really more, when he says you should have language of encouragement instead of breaking down. So... The challenge, I think, with something like this, and this is more just a conversation about disbelief and belief. I think there's plenty of things of which you can hopefully, and we'll find avenues to talk about this with other people throughout the week, maybe Zoom, small group, something like that. But the challenge about something like this is finding the pockets of disbelief that we all have in our hearts and minds, right? And one of, let me tell you, one of the main reasons that I invite men into my life in areas of accountability is because I know I have blind spots. And I know 
that these blind spots are often accompanied with areas of disbelief in my heart. And it often takes someone else to come into my life and say, Chris, man, hey, in an encouraging and loving way, hopefully, a way that I can hear it, hopefully, but say, hey, man, listen, I'm seeing some patterns and some trajectory and some behavior that may be betraying some disbelief in your heart, right? And having ears to hear that and having even a willingness to be in a community that would do that, to hold you to that kind of accountability is, I think, a gift of God itself, right? So my prayer for this place is that we would be a people of robust and deeply rooted faith. And my prayer is that this place would be a people who would come, who feel blind, and when they come and engage, that they would feel sight coming back into their life vision coming back, you know, to be the kind of person who walks in and enjoys faith and belief in their heart and mind. Let's stand and pray.